You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of Cure to Consumption. I am your host, Lance Lambert, coming to you from Southern California out of the beautiful Hayes Radio Network studios. Looking forward to another week here. We've got a great guest, Rob Miha. My gosh, um, I get excited. This, this is an individual that I met through a mutual friend. He's like, you guys have to meet, you have to connect. We did, and I don't... We spoke forever, <laughs> but, uh, a professor by trade, uh, with a lot of ties in the industry, very passionate, like many that we have on the show. And I believe Rob's on the line. Rob, are you there? I am here. I'm here and ready to talk about all the things that are going on in the cannabis world. My gosh. Yes, I know. We'll, it's, it's a 45 minute, but you know what? We might have to do a part one, part two, because you're like me, you're <laughs> such a plethora of information, <laughs> you know? So, well, first off, you're coming out. Of, I'll, I'll let you tell a little bit about yourself, but you're coming out of New Jersey, which um, there's a lot going on on the East Coast. But yeah, if you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your background, and then uh, I know we have plenty to catch up on. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I'd be happy to. So I, I do a lot of things in the cannabis industry, but probably the thing I'm, I'm best known for is that I am a cannabis professor at Stockton University, which is in southern New Jersey near Atlantic City. And at Stockton University, we actually offer a minor in cannabis studies. So a student can major in anything, and probably about a third of them that go to cannabis, that want the cannabis minor, have a health background, about another third have business, and then there's everybody else from any other major you can think of. But they take five classes, and I teach the Introduction to Medical Cannabis class. I teach the Preparation to Cannabis Internship class, so I help students get internships and jobs. And then I also just created a brand new course that's going to be taught, taught in about a month, and that is uh, social justice and cannabis. Oh, that's awesome. That yeah, cool. so, that's, so that part is super exciting. I also am yeah. president of Our Community Harvest, the cannabis education company. So we create all kinds of cannabis educational material, whether it's um, posters, brochures, web content, in-person seminars, online classes. If, if you can name it in cannabis education, we've probably touched it in some way or another. And then I'm also a cooking with cannabis um, enthusiast and chef, so I've hosted a number of events in that area. Uh, Let's see, and then I also uh, work in cannabis trademarks and brands, and so I've trademarked Arcanini Harvest and California Home Growers Association. So, so, yeah, there's just a few things going on over here in New Jersey. You sound like me. Everyone's like, okay, wait, you've got a show and you write a column and you do it and you're VP of marketing. I'm like, you know what? When you're passionate about what you do, all of a sudden it feels a little less like work. You know, I mean, I'm tired at the end of the day, but I'm not tired and annoyed. I'm tired and satisfied (laughs) with the impact I'm making. And I did actually forget to mention kind of a big thing, too. I am the author of the Essential Cannabis book. Yes. Author of the Essential Cannabis Journal. And then I write articles for Ever Cannabis Magazine. And I'm actually just um, going to be starting writing some freelance articles for NJ.com here in New Jersey. Oh, very cool. I've been keeping an eye on them. So that's awesome, man. You're, uh, And it sounds like you're very similar to me. It's not that there aren't a plethora of opportunities out there, but the ones you choose, and I'm exactly the same way, I'm kind of methodical. You know, it's if I'm going to put my time and energy, especially if it's going to be pro bono, which I'm all about doing. Again, you know, I'm, I think we've discussed this. I'm an advocate, not an activist, so I I lead with education. I'm not forcing the thought or the ideology on anyone, but I really want to be cognizant of the platforms that I get my message out on. And uh, and again, I know you're very similar in your beliefs, but my gosh, you have a guy. And then then we shouldn't forget, I remember you discussing um, there's several universities that have programs. Uh, similar to yours, but also at different scales. And you also have uh, a bit of an annual pilgrimage to get all those universities together uh, to talk about where things are right and and where the industry is progressing and where education plays a role into the big picture, correct? We we do. That's actually a very exciting event that we call the Cannabis Curriculum Convening. And so Stockton held that for the first time on April 21st and 22nd. And what we did is we gathered over 30 professors from across the country that teach undergraduate cannabis on a daily basis. So we had people from Purdue, North Carolina State, NYU, a couple of the SUNYs, uh, Lake Superior State, Doan, and uh, University of Connecticut, and the list just went on and on. So we put together 11 different panels, and they focused on things like there was hemp cultivation, uh, there was a general cultivation class, there was one on, or uh, seminar, there was one on uh, science, 
medical, law, and the list kind of goes on and on. But the big thing was <clears throat> that we, I'm sorry about that, that we found that uh, it was just so exciting to find other cannabis educators who actually taught in the classroom. So we got to talk about what, what assignments worked, uh, what didn't, what do you do in a law class when the law changes every day, so how do you even do your syllabus? But it was a lot of nitty-gritty for people who really are devoted to cannabis education and to undergraduate cannabis education. 100%. And that's, I know we discussed this, and I'm still looking forward to it. We will reconnect because I'd love to come out like you offered and, and get to uh, speak to some of these classes. I mean, it's just so, I think we discussed this because we have a mutual friend that's out in Colorado uh, doing a somewhat similar program. And I remember speaking to that group, and it was it was a, a very much a, a plethora of ages and individuals. <clears throat> Excuse me. You had everything from, you know, late teens to, to late 20s. Uh, that were taking this. It was a, at the at the time. It was a summer program, and I was just I, I was so excited about these individuals that were interested in getting into this opportunity. And you know, we try to educate and tell people that you know now just in in the U.S. Never mind the international, especially Canada and parts of South America. You know, we've employed over 300. I think we're almost up to 350,000 people employed directly to this industry. That's not ancillary, secondary that service the industry like banks, etc. But specifically, people that are working in this industry at some level, cultivators, educators, lawyers, etc. And it's so cool to see the younger generations that are taking this serious and going, wow, th- this is a career path. This is an opportunity I can take in that I can help along the way educate individuals to understand just how much opportunity exists here. Um, so I still, especially with you talking about doing, you know, touching on the, the social and social equality, I mean, that's very much a topic that finally is coming front and center in our industry. Um, there's enough states that are riding it into the rules and regulations. And, you know, we did a great job. Oakland did a fantastic job out here in Northern California, but it really does need to happen everywhere, um, you know, to, to in order essentially to address the, the wrongs and try to right the wrongs from the war on drugs. So love to hear the latest uh, curriculum that you're going to be putting out with that. That's that's some exciting news, I have to say. Yeah, you're, you're you're so correct about the social justice and social equity. And personally, what I'm doing on my part is not only did I propose the social justice and cannabis class and get that accepted as an in-person class, and then also we're going to be putting a version of that in our continuing education department where we have six courses, now there'll be seven, that lead to a cannabis certificate. So for people who are not enrolled students, but they still want cannabis education, uh, Stockton still provides that in the form of seven courses that are all online, they're self-paced, they have assessment, and so you get some um, excellent knowledge, and we're pushing the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission to recognize that cannabis certificate as experience as well, because we think that a number of social equity applicants can go through those courses, get their cannabis certificate, and hopefully that will help them on their applications. And we're also working with Atlantic City. And Atlantic City is is one of the cities that definitely was um, devastated by the war on drugs. And so Stockton is contributing a couple scholarships to our continuing ed department and and the cannabis classes. But we're also trying a pilot program where we're trying to provide all the resources that a social equity candidate would need to be successful. So we're looking at things like uh, more expungement help. Even though New Jersey has an automatic program, you definitely need (laughs) a a number of attorneys because there are so many different wrinkles in the the legal process in New Jersey in particular. So we're building up um, legal uh, volunteers. We're also setting up business people to help with uh, writing business plans. Uh, We're trying to locate funding and pushing for low interest, no interest, and outright grants. And then also we're trying to set up really kind of an incubator and accelerator program. So anything we can do to help a social equity partner, I'm trying to get people from the New Jersey community to kick in their talent and their time to make this happen. So we're going to start with with just two candidates, although I am talking to an MSO that's probably going to contribute another 10 scholarships. So I want to find out what the ideal class is that can go through this process and become um, successful at the end. Definitely. Well, and that's something that just popped in my head. Um, you know, I was working with them a little bit during uh, my time at Greenflower, but uh, cookies. 
has a really cool program. I could see them being interested, you know, speaking of MSOs, because as far as multi-state <laughs> you, operators I, go. I, uh, you, you may be a mind reader. I'll just leave it. <laughs> awesome. I'm so stoked to hear that. I know the, I know the head of that uh, department over there, too. So I, that that is great. Well, you know, again, you already know this and just on a side, but any way I can support, and I do love mentoring as well, um, but any way I can support and, and help connect dots because, you know, this is fantastic. I mean, you are a little bit of a diamond in the rough, I will say, because while the East Coast is coming up and specifically the Northeast, you know, thank goodness for the movement uh, with Jersey and New York, you know, in the tri-state area in general, um, but all along the Eastern Seaboard uh, from Maine to, to, my gosh, Hollywood Beach, Florida, you know, there's, there's things that are moving, but I still feel like when you compare the East to the West and we're not trying to get into the, you know, this isn't a rap war or anything, (laughs) (laughs) not, not Tupac versus Biggie, but you know, it it is kind of this East coast, West coast mentality. And I feel like there, you know, that, uh, that amount of representation, you know, people that are trying to support the industry, um, and, and make an impact, uh, all different angles. Um, you know, there aren't as many individuals, it seems, on the East Coast like you. So I feel like it really, it needs to bring, you know, the two sides together because a lot of the tribal and a lot of that legacy insight uh, that comes out of Oregon, Washington, California, but even, you know, more recently, Colorado, uh, you know, that's that's what needs to be tapped into. And, and again, like we were talking about, not just for multi-state operators or people trying to figure out, you know, what the successful, most successful concentrate is to sell in a given market, but ways to level up companies and ways to bring more people in because I posted up and I I think you've seen on my LinkedIn about once a quarter, I put up a post that says it's never too late to get in the industry. Now is as good a time as any. And people are like, well, are you sure you, I don't, I'm passionate about cannabis. I have been for years, but I'm still in the green closet and I'm currently driving for FedEx or I'm currently working, you know, with the military or whatever. I'm like, we need everyone. I'm like this, this category, when you actually look at it compared to other, let's compare it to automotive or to .com, unlike those categories, the opportunity is exponential because our category actually needs people like scientists and, and doctors and lawyers and, and marketers and, you know, sell, sales people and logistics and all the rest of it. But we need so many people to bring in their expertise from these ancillary categories because that's what helps us you know, high tide rise, right? It just helps bring everyone up to that next level of professionalism and it really helps kind of push away. I know we can never erase it, um, but to help right the wrongs, rather be, again, like we were talking about social equity, social equality, um, but also just helping eliminate that stigma and tabooism that's associated with the industry, right? You know, I mean, it all makes a difference. Absolutely. I mean, that that is such a good point about... um, trying to help people pivot. So you're right that there are people who do want to get in the industry and they're kind of on the outside looking in. They're wondering, you know, how do I do it? So the the thing that I always start with is you have to have a baseline of cannabis knowledge. I don't care whether you're going to go into the accounting department or or we're going to go into something real specialized like cultivation where you obviously need a lot of cannabis knowledge. But you definitely need a baseline to get in there so that you understand how things work and, and why certain aspects of cannabis are important. Um, but then you already have some skills. So point those accounting skills, point those marketing skills in the cannabis market. But learn what it means to be a cannabis marketer because exactly. you don't have all the channels available to you, for example. So professionals definitely need that baseline of cannabis knowledge, but then they can pivot if, if they want to and they're determined enough to do it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, since we were talking about social equity, is that I had done a bunch of research when I was writing my course and the one thing that I think we're kind of missing in every state so far is I think we're actually weirdly kind of ahead of some things. So there are a number of people who were affected by cannabis convictions, mm-hmm. but they don't want to go into the cannabis industry. Yes. And they need basic things like basic job training, for example. They may not even have a GED, may not have a high school diploma, may not have a college degree. They also might want to go into other different fields. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I could see someone like... Uh, you know, my, my mother, if one of us were, were convicted, there is no way she would ever want to get in the cannabis industry. But would she want yeah. to take care of, take advantage of some other opportunities? Uh, possibly. Yeah. So I think in some ways we need to handle sort of the real basic part of social equity first and help with uh, basic skills, basic job training, basic education before assuming somebody wants to get into the uh, cannabis and hemp industry. Yeah, very true. And that's, you know, I will say that's why I've um, shown my support. And again, gosh, uh, when a Greenflower started a $50,000 a year grant 
for him. But the Last Prisoner Project, you know, that's what I like about what Steve and uh, Mary are doing up there. You know, because you're right. I mean, there's some people that come out and while they are savvy and smart in many instances, you know, entrepreneurial at heart, that's a lot of people get in this industry. Even myself, I didn't come out and share that that's how I was able to fund myself going off to college back in the 90s was, was <laughs> you know, selling illicit cannabis. Um, but, you know, statutes of limitations, I'm safe. <laughs> but, you know, it is one of those things that they recognize that the people come out and just because they know or that's what they were doing, they're phenomenal growers or, or again, processors or distributors, um, to use the technical terms. Some of those people don't want to get back into it. You're right. Some of the people, they, they you know, they're ready for, for a mainstream opportunity and, you know, they've done the time. Um, so I think you're right. That is really a baseline is uh, taking care of those because, oh my gosh, of all incarcerated in this country, I know it's 60% plus that are, you know, incarcerated for some sort of drug uh, possession. Granted, not all cannabis. I mean, there's plenty of opioid, methamphetamine, cocaine, you know, uh, people are incarcerated for other things, but um, there are enough that are incarcerated for cannabis, and it is something that we can do. And someone made a statement, I'm trying to remember what market they're in, but um, they're talking to a friend that, you know, I think he only spent a year or two inside, but still, that, that was incarcerated for uh, cannabis-related crime. And here he was walking to his court, he's on probation, and he is walking to his court hearing past a legal dispensary that was making money off the very thing that he just had his whole record tainted by, um, which kind of segues into expungement, which um, if I'm keeping track of my um, legalization by state correctly, that is something that Jersey did address, right? Similar to other states as far as looking at expungement for past uh, for past violators? I mean, obviously for small, you know, uh, personal possession and such, right? Yeah, so so at least the, the idea behind it is pretty robust, and that is that it will be automatic expungement, that it'll be online and uh, no fee mm-hmm. also. Oh, nice. So, that, so that's Even the good better. part of it. Yeah. But the bad part of it is that um, we also have a, a lot of sort of technicality. So there was, there was something called a first offenders program, that New Jersey had. And basically what happened is people had to plead guilty to a lower charge, but they did plead guilty. So So, um, because they were involved in that first offender program, uh, that that for some weird legal wrinkle took them out of the running for automatic expungement. So that's one of those things where somebody tried to actually do the right thing, but now they're actually kind of being penalized because because they were proactive about getting their um, trying to move on from their record. So we do have a few of those things. Man. And then um, there's also the case of uh, a number of, uh, of um, illegal immigrants who, who also don't want to step forward because they're, yeah. they're afraid of any number of things that can happen. Yeah. So there are, there are a lot of groups that still need help with expungement, even if, even if it sounds like it's automatic. That, so um, <laughs> that's, that's why we are trying at Stockton to gather up some attorneys who will work pro bono for people like that that have fallen through the cracks. Yeah, but uh, but on an uh, ideological stage, and uh, yes, it's fantastic. Automatic expungement, absolutely. That's that's a big step one. That is, but that catch twenty two that you speak of, because plea outs and plea bargains are not uncommon for those that don't know. I mean, well, I'm sure enough people watch <laughs> so many crime TV shows anymore. Probably know half the stuff <laughs> that I learned in school as a CJ major. But you know that that is that is something that's really important for people to know because that is very common. That you know it's depending on what the DA and and what the municipality in general is looking to accomplish. You know, out here we have several counties that want to keep their numbers down. So it's interesting, like Marin County, where I grew up, up in the Bay Area, for those that don't know, it's just on the other side of the gate uh, from San Francisco um, and and just south of Santa Rosa. Um, You know, they didn't want to have on record anything that was drug related. So they do things like um, search and seize and they'd, they'd essentially plea out on keeping property seized and therefore being able to liquidate and self-fund um, in right. exchange for not having anything go on your criminal record. So in their mind, in <laughs> most people that, you know, obviously that were caught and prosecuted under this process, uh, you know, they felt it was a win-win for them too. Because, of course, if I can give you my home or if I can give you my car and it keeps a clean record in me not doing time, there's enough people to recognize the benefit of not having a felony on 
on record uh, versus giving up tangible goods. And so that was a win for Marin County, kept their stats and their numbers down. We're, you were a low crime county. We're one of the safest counties in the Bay Area, but they were working the system and it, it is very common. So that is interesting to hear. I was not aware that that was such a common practice for, for a plea in uh, Jersey. So I hope they do get that sorted out because that is, that creates a conundrum for that individual who's just trying to say, hey, for once in my life, I want to be able to fill out that resume and say, no, I don't have a felony on my record, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, oh, I do. yeah that, that, that is one of the common obstacles. And then other obstacles behind beyond that are the uh, education and training are definitely up there. Yeah. Also, one of the big, big ones is access to funding. Yeah. So for a lot of other people, they, they have a network where they can bootstrap a little bit. And I was at an early conference um, and they said that some of the cannabis businesses that w- they were mostly funded by friends and family, yeah. and that the number was between twenty five thousand and two hundred fifty thousand, and that was that was the bulk of the businesses that were self funded. But I mean, you have to have a network that's able to produce that. If you're a social equity applicant, it's likely you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, so correct. access to funding is, is crucial. So states that do either um, outright grants or or low interest funding or no interest funding. Those are also good ideas to help um, people get a start. Yeah, definitely true. My gosh, good stuff. So on the other side, I know we talked a little bit about in whatever you can speak of. I know there's some things I know of that maybe we won't discuss today that you have as far as irons in the fire. But <laughs> but uh, I know you do have some ties to uh, the shift that's going on as far as uh, again, legal, that's something we should reference, legal uh, medical studies uh, as it pertains to cannabis in the country. And um, I know you had something going on there, right, with uh, another certain college that was working to uh, get qualified with the feds on that program. Is that moving yeah, along? Stockton, back on, uh, back on April 1st, Stockton launched our um, Cannabis and Hemp Research Initiative. Mm-hmm. And, and the main pillars of that initiative were to study um, hemp genetics and hemp cultivation and share that knowledge with the community. And then also to share general cannabis information and knowledge with the community. Um, Also to set up a standalone lab, because there's definitely a big need for testing in New Jersey. I'll tell you a quick story about that in a moment. And then the other other, um, pillar is to engage with, train, um, and help the post-prison population get cultivation jobs in hemp and or cannabis, because we do have an indoor greenhouse. We also have an organic uh, certified farm, and we have a regular farm as well. So our vision is uh, for those social equity applicants who want to learn that they can actually get um, real training in the field, and hopefully through our career ed department and with all the connections we have, uh, we can hopefully get them employment. So that's really what our our Cannabis and Hemp Research Initiative um, is, is really all about. And again, to have something like that in New Jersey, and for those that don't know their geography, this we're not talking about a large state like Texas or California or even Florida or Colorado. I mean, you all only have so much to work with there in that state. And to have a university, it's being able to apply for a program and have the resources that you do on site. I mean, that's big, especially in a, in a snowbound state. I mean, that's a big thing to be able to have these resources uh, to, it, to, it to be a part it of the program. Very big. Right? The one thing I was going to tell you about the testing labs yeah. is that we have such a dearth of labs right now that I know that there is a dispensary. Uh, I was on a call with them just about three weeks ago, and they have a bunch of product. They had over 20 pounds of product waiting to be tested. And so there it is in the back room. They can't put it on the market, and they're they're kind of known as having a paucity of product. Uh, So there it is sitting back there. They can't get it tested, so then they can't sell it to consumers. So it's waiting, it's waiting, it's a couple months, and of course it's degrading over time. So it, it is a big issue that we do not have enough testing labs in New Jersey. The commission did adopt the, the rules for Maryland, for the Maryland testing labs in the interim. So that's a good start. But um, but the one point that, that someone made was we probably should have been looking at interim lab rules from a state that already went to adult use. But yeah. that's where the bulk yeah. of the market's going. Yeah. So if we set up a lab system that's designed for medical, you know that as soon as the state goes from medical to adult use, that um, market goes anywhere from, it doubles in a minute, and it can yeah. go up to 10 times as, as much, depending 100%. on what state you're looking at. But anyway, you, so it's just kind of setting things up for not, not, a, not a forward-thinking policy. So I'm hoping that that'll be switched to allow for um, and the development of many more labs, because we are, we're going to be way behind. If, we, if you lack the lab stuff, you can't, you can't go forward. You have to have that piece of the puzzle. Yeah. 
That's 100 percent. And that is um, I was just talking about on uh, last week's show, you know, how we have a plethora of licenses here. I know some states like Florida, et cetera, you know, have a singular license, but we have several licenses that you can stack. The one you can't stack is the lab. So you can't offset, you know, your your cogs as far as, you know, your business goes compared to someone who can process and at the same time produce or can produce and at the same time dis- distribute or produce in retail. Um, you know, there's there's little meat on the bone. A lot of people don't recognize. And I, I know that people in the industry complain when they're having to pay 100, 200, 500 uh, for testing, for batch testing. But I mean, if they knew how much it costs to run that business as a lab, and, and there's some equipment. I mean, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I've, I've seen the equipment that some of the successful labs have, and I mean, I'm proud of the equipment we have as you know a post-harvest solution company. You know, a few million dollars in in lays and lasers, et cetera. A lab's not too far off when you're talking about micro spec- or macro spectrometry. <laughs> I can't even get the name out. Definitely not a side of the business I'm familiar that familiar with. But man, it's tough. And, and that's the same thing. I've heard of other markets where the bottleneck really is, to your point, with the labs, because there's just not enough people that want to get into that side of the business. There's just, in many instances, it's more of a pain, you know, than anything else to operate. So that, That's totally true. Plus, they need qualified employees, which sort yeah. of goes back to... Uh, training in college. I did have, we do have some students that are, that have a science background. And so the nice part is we have a lab on campus and one of the activities they do is to test CBD potency on a bunch of different oh, products. That's cool. So we'll get, we'll get samples. We'll get products from def, a bunch of manufacturers and they get real practice in testing and finding out if the uh, potency and everything else is correct there. So we are training them to try to get into labs. And that's actually a, a very good area for a number of colleges. There's places yeah. like uh, Northern Michigan, Colorado State, yeah. Um, Lake Superior State, Doan, that they're training a lot of their students to, to be scientists in cannabis and talk about a great area to go into. So not only do you have the lab protocol and the science knowledge, but you have specialized cannabis knowledge. So you're going to get hired yeah. in a minute. Yeah. And, that, and, and you said that before, and it's one thing that's really interesting because I have to agree with you, whereas some people might not, that having some sort of baseline aptitude or acumen that as it pertains to cannabis into the category, even like you said, even if you're an accountant, you know, just having that base knowledge of understanding and, and you don't have to be an advocate. That's one thing I share with people, you know, back in my days at Weed Maps, uh, we did, uh, it, it, you know, this was just an in-house survey just for, for common, you know, insight and interest in, in who we're employing. But almost a third of our employees were not cannabis consumers. They they definitely they supported the movement um, to a certain extent. Were passionate about the movement, but um, you know they did not consume. That doesn't mean that they didn't wow. have the base knowledge required. No matter if to your point, if they're doing you know post production for me and media, or if they were a web dev guy over on the dev team or a retail sales rep, you know they all had some level of knowledge around the plant and more importantly around the industry where it's going, uh, the legality from market to market. I mean, all things are, are, all these things are really relevant, even for an HR manager, you know? So, but, but, but hopefully even the people who are not consumers, I hope they were passionate about cannabis. I mean, one thing yeah. I am finding is that the students and the people who do want to pivot their careers, mm-hmm. that uh, there definitely is more of a focus on mission-based employment. Yeah. So I am seeing so many more people, and I don't know if it's because people were stuck in COVID for so long, and, and during that amount of time, you certainly have time for reflection. Oh, yes. You have time to think about your life and where you're going and what you're contributing and what your mark is going to be and um, all, all those things. Yep. And so for a number of people, they decided kind of after COVID, you know what, I don't just want to make money for somebody else. I want to do something that has a mission. <laughs> I want to make a difference yep. in the world. And with students in particular, I don't know if it's generational or just because those kind of opportunities are there, but I, I am seeing that um, employers who really have have a mission and make it apparent as to what their mission is and to let their employees contribute, that, that is, that's a big selling point and a big mark. And people yeah. will even um, take a small back step for a bit in terms of uh, income and possibly some other things in order to get in there. And then they know that they can go, you can go fast. Actually, I would say yeah. for people who are interested in getting in cannabis employment, if you get in and if you're diligent and smart, do a good job, all those good things, yeah. Your chances for inv- advancement are are limitless, and uh, you can go up the chain pretty quickly. I I completely agree. It's the conversation I have. We're just amidst 
uh, doing a round of hires at Green Bros and uh, the individuals that I'm, it was great because for one, being able to, to speak freely and openly about cannabis in the industry with a candidate um, and, and for them, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if you're a consumer. I never ask. I just say, you know, I don't know if you're a consumer or not, a supporter or not, but you know, so I want to let you know that, you know, we very much are supporters. You know, this is a company that was uh, industry born. It's a mantra we use. Many of us are growers. I'm still a grower. I, I grow every season now, you know, so, so um, yeah, I know <laughs> I, a, a kind of tangent story on that. I'll tell you just now, but, you know, it, talking to these individuals in, you know, I had one that I interviewed and he's like, nope, he's like, I've, I've been a consumer for 10 years. Um, I use it therapeutically. I use it medicinally. I use it recreationally. Um, I understand it. I appreciate it. Uh, but one thing I was sharing to him is that the opportunity for exponential growth in your career is 100% viable. I mean, that's for me. And, uh, you know, I felt fortunate coming from .com because that was an evolution. But I stood back, and this was even before the pandemic. I don't know why. I just had an epiphany, and I'm like, you know, like when I was working for Auto Trader, I was making the Cox sisters rich. And when I was working for Carfax, I was making, you know, Mr. Polk, which <laughs> nice guy, but was making Polk. Like I'm, I'm like I'm making these people rich. I'm I'm helping them be successful, and and I know that might be their end goal, but I want to make a bigger impact. I want to do something. And I was passionate about digital media, and you know, I'm still passionate about it. I'm passionate about cars. You know, that's why I loved Auto Trader and Carfax, but. You know, I was like, I, I want to do something bigger. And when the industry kind of opened its arms to me, um, even I have to tell you, even after my first gig at uh, the Cannabis, you know, I kind of pulled a Jerry Maguire there because, you know, they're owned by a hedge fund. Well, the parent company is owned by a hedge fund. and <laughs> not a fan of hedge fund, not that whole 20 percent YY at any cost, human capital or otherwise. But when I left, it was interesting because the industry reached back out to me, you know, and in that first 24 hours, I'd. Gosh, Matt Stang from High Times and Andy Williams from Medicine Man Technologies and, and then JJ from Weed Maps all reach out and they're like, you're staying in the industry, right? Will you come work for me? Man, I, I'd only been in the industry for a minute. I mean, at that point, I'd only been in it for a few years, two, two and a half years. I did not think I made that big of an impact as I did. But it was the industry that acknowledged and said, yes, you did. And we need more people like you. And to your point, I, you know, having a little bit of advantage, again, growing up in Northern California, being around the culture, the craft and, and being tied to the legacy or traditional market before the legal market. I do have advantages. I recognize that. But you can be just as passionate and not be from Northern California and not have grown or not have sold or not, you know, um, there's plenty of those individuals out there. And I, again, that's where you and I are so succinct because those people have so much opportunity to advance and to do something they love in the process, right? I mean, so like when you and I talk, I can hear you're passionate about what you do, which speaks volumes. Um, and I think that's what attracts me to other people that not only are out of the green closet, the proverbial green closet, but um, but really elude that level of passion. Uh, but again, you're spot on. So much opportunity in so many different segments of it. And hopefully those individuals are taking more classes like what you offer and what, what many other universities offer to get a true understanding of what, like the fact that you have an internship. I mean, that's cool that you actually have a class that helps these individuals understand how they can get internships with this industry. And not that we do a lot of internships, but there's a lot of entry level opportunities um, that people can take. And to your point, might, might be a step back in income, might be a step back in title. I've done that. I've done that several times in my career. I even took a little bit of a, a pay decrease in my most recent shift, but I did it because I knew this is something that was a better fit for me and something that would allow me to be even more vocal about my passion. So people, people do it at all levels in their career. And if you're smart enough and confident enough about that opportunity that exists, then it's, it's not a scary thing. It really isn't. You know, you have to, you really have to weigh all opportunities and kind of factor in little things like the work-life balance. And again, your, your passion and your position in the business. So all good stuff. Well, what else, what else is going on? So you've got the book, um, doing the cooking. I got to get you some of uh Shuggie's sugar. I just got that from a rooftop <laughs> event out here. <laughs> uh, friend, uh, Raymond RW Davis does these social events. He did one at LPEP in, uh, WeHo, West Hollywood. Sorry. And, um, the guy from Shuggie's, he's passing out these, uh, was his little over a pound packs and um, it's a little, it's a right around five milligrams per tablespoon. So perfect for cooking. Because I have to admit, I, I don't know about you, but I was always making my own homemade oil, my own homemade butter. That's what <laughs> took so long. Forget the cookies, the brownies, the, the <laughs> you know, the chewies. It was creating that foundational. So finding a product that I, I can just throw into the, the mix, literally, 
you know. So are those some of the things that you've been focusing on uh, now that the, the pandemic is moving to the next level and you're able to kind of get out a little bit more? Uh, yeah, actually, this was kind of, of a big week in terms of um, getting out a little more. So just on what was last Thursday, we had our first in-person uh, sort of seminar meeting event with NJ Canna Insider at Asbury oh, Park. okay. And that was, that was on Thursday night. And at that, at that, it was sold out. So there were about 250 people there. Stockton Jeez. had a table. And it was amazing how many people during the pandemic I've talked to on the phone, Zoom, everything else. And then all of a sudden, I got to meet them in person. That's so, that, awesome. so that was pretty incredible. And I got to bring uh, three of my students. And they got, they got to see me network. And they got to do some networking, which was, which was excellent for them. So that, part, that was an exciting event. And then um, also, I just uh, went out to Colorado a couple of days ago to go see my parents. My parents are 87 and 91. Oh my gosh. And I thought it was safe enough to go see them. And so I went out there, nice. uh, saw the Colorado market a little bit. Saw, yep. um, saw my brothers and sisters. I'm actually one of 13 kids. So there's, oh my there's gosh. a lot going on <laughs> in the, uh, in the Mejia households around Denver. Wow. So busy seeing all the different relatives, including, um, one brother, one brother who's become a tremendous home grower. And they, so they can home grow in Colorado. And so he has his number of plants. And the great, great partnership we have is that, I hear all the research, so I'm on the panels, yeah. I read things and all that. So recently I was on a hemp panel, I believe it was, and um, there was an Italian researcher, and he talked about the use of biochar. And oh, he said wow. that biochar, in the way they used it in some cases, helped to increase the crop, the crop production by 50% up to, in some cases, 200%. Wow. So we were talking about that, <laughs> and he's tried biochar, and I would love to do some real research in a lab. Yeah. But um, <laughs> just anecdotally, wow. I mean, it was just impressive how his plants have just, they are some of the biggest plants I've ever seen and they're healthy and doing great. I don't know if it's all biochar or his green thumb or whatever, but I I love that we sort of go back and forth. So I give him different formulas to try with his uh, soil and different amendments and all that. And he does it and um, he's been quite successful. So I'm, I'm quite jealous. He gets to home grow. New Jersey is the only state that is allowing for um, adult use, but does not allow home grow. Well, you know, actually, Illinois and Washington State, if you can believe me, now they're, I think they're signing a petition up in Washington State to be able to allow it. Well, Washington, yeah, Washington, I should yeah. clarify, Washington did, did take them a while to get going on that, but they yeah. finally agreed to it. Oh, did, yeah, because I have to admit, I, was, I mean, nothing against California, you know, grew up my whole life here. But I've definitely been eyeing Oregon and Washington in recent years, and I've been favoring a little bit more so South Washington, you know, the uh, East Vancouver, Camas area. And I have to tell you, I oh, yeah. mean, that was one thing that was a bit of a disappointment is that they didn't have home grow as an option. And again, we're also talking about Washington was that one that's like, okay, you got your adult use now, you don't need medical. And it's like, what? Wait, no, that's not. <laughs> that, that's not how this. Look, look at a country like Portugal that fully decriminalized, which I love that Oregon, you know, just did that recently too. But decriminalized yeah. all drugs and then instituted a medical cannabis program to be able to support other people and treat it, you know, compassionately, not, not criminally. So instead of sending people to prison with drug addictions, sending them to a help clinic and getting them the support they need, obviously they're self-medicating for a reason, but they fund that program with the taxes from the medical cannabis program that they launched after, (laughs) you know, after decriminalizing drugs. It's like so many markets in, in there. It's such patchwork here. I know we'll get around to that place, um, which always leads me into a great question. I love to ask you here. Um, Because I still, I've been saying that the watershed moment for uh, movement at the federal level is going to come by 2022. And I've been saying it for the last three or four years, Um, just kind of, you know, it's a little bit of tea leaves and tarot cards. I get it. (laughs) But like you, always always keeping an eye on what's happening, not only domestically, but, um, you know, I write an article uh, for uh, MG Magazine, MG Retailer, and my core focus of that uh, series is on the international uh, movement towards legalization for cannabis. So just seeing what's happening on the international stage and then bringing it back to domestic with, you know, a certain pharmaceutical company buying out GW, which happens to be the largest exporter of medical cannabis yeah. and the only one that has an FDA approval on biomass based uh, cannabinoid medicine. Um, but also some of the bigger obvious ones like LP mergers and acquisitions, we're seeing the MAs there. And again, you know, just some of the, um, the, the final movements that are occurring with federal, but, um, I still think that there's going to be a watershed moment in 2022, even if it is just something around decriminalization or it it might not be as far as establishing a framework. But 
Where do you feel we are? And you're a little bit closer to, obviously, you're a little bit closer to D.C. It's right down the way. And then, you know, um, a a lot of what's going on around New York and New Jersey, again, in the tri-states in general. But what's your take on kind of that next move for us, especially with Mexico finally moving forward and Canada obviously being online for for three years? Yeah, boy, there is is so much going on in that area. I do think, I mean, every time I make a prediction about timing in cannabis, I find that I, I find that I'm confident, and maybe that's my yeah. maybe that's just my personality. Yeah. Um, but but I thought New Jersey would have been legalized through legislature a while ago. I thought there would have been yeah. a few more states online. I thought Biden was going to be much more supportive because oh. of uh, Kamala. I thought yeah. she was pushing him. Yeah. So I, I do think that there will be action in 2022 um, in a couple areas. I, I think the banking <clears throat> is probably going to have to move just because the. Uh, the, the numbers are just incredible, yeah. and they just keep going. And, and the way that they're handling it through state-based credit unions and mm. you know debit that goes offshore and all the other mm, yep. financial permutations that go on, that, that definitely needs to be handled. And okay. I know that uh, clearly every state and the U.S. government needs money, and they'd like to keep better track of it. So I think the banking and, – and if New York could actually get moving on their legalization – since they're really the banking capital of the U.S., I yes. think that could really move yeah. things forward. So, Agreed. I do think by 2022 we're going to have we're going to have banking, yep. and and then also I do think I agree with you that we'll have um, decriminalization. Those are the only two things, though. I don't think we're yeah. going to have anything else beyond that. I don't think we're going to see a national legalization or national framework or national tax or anything. I think that's still unfortunately a couple more years down the road. Yeah, I'd have to agree that that I could see the quickest coming into fruition is 2024 and. I, I thought there would be now. I, I do know there are several organizations, uh, especially actually going back to um, you know social equity. There's a lot of uh, civil liberties groups that um, you know were supporting one or another, a cultural ethnic group that started speaking up uh, over on the hill in D.C. Uh, just last month. You know that are starting to question you know the civil rights associated with with this being an illicit plant. But I I was kind of curious because Mexico, a lot of people don't know that you know essentially they did take this step of saying hey. You know, it's unconstitutional to criminalize this plant. That was kind of the first step towards decriminalization, descheduling, and then, you know, obviously writing the framework, which has taken them a bit of time and everyone's kind of balked about. It's finally here. But, you know, all in due time, they're moving in the right direction. But I thought that that would have more of an influence. And I totally agree with you with Kamala and coming out of Northern California, man. I mean, she so much that she did um, and supported in Oakland, San Francisco. Uh, you know, and then hearing what's been going on since, you know, they've gotten into office, it has been a bit, bit of a disappointment. And, um, you know, that Safe Banking Act, I was out there lobbying with uh, Attached, the American Trade Association for Cannabis and Hemp. I'm now I'm just kind of pro bono social supporter of theirs, but was on their board. And we were out there. Um, that was the time I got to meet Earl Blumenauer. Oh, what a badass. There's very few politicians that <laughs> I'm a total rock star, you know, crush on fan. But my gosh, he is so freaking cool. Such a nice personable guy and all the things that he's been doing, like, um, my gosh, you know, passing uh, legalization of interstate commerce in Oregon, which obviously there's, you know, still federal is not there and there's not a reciprocity state that he can work with. But, you know, at least Oregon's trying to plant those flags. Um, but so much, you're right, there is so much going on, but yet not enough. And the Safe Banking Act is definitely at the top, man. I have to say, to your point, I mean, why governments, rather be local municipalities, state or federal, would want to encourage and condone uh, such a large uh, industry to continue to work in the shadows in, in a cash-only scenario, and especially in this day and age, yeah. absolutely boggles the mind. I mean, that's like yeah. saying, okay, we'll legalize gambling. Which I'm kind of teasing on the past here. We'll legalize gambling, but no, we don't need to try. Just do everything cash. We, we don't need to monitor it. Like, really? <laughs> you know? But it's just, it's just another example, though, of how cannabis is treated so unfairly, and there still is the stigma. Yeah. So the federal government won't get you banking. But you're absolutely required to pay taxes, and they oh, certainly yeah. expect that. Oh, yeah, Certainly a lot of revenue from that. Yeah. So we'll, we'll take your money, but we won't give you the normal pathways of any other business, alcohol, tobacco, any, anything. I mean, it's just, it just, it definitely boggles the mind. Oh, my gosh. And that's and, such and, an And to your, to your point about Mexico, um, one thing that actually gave me some kind of interesting insight into the market was that um, during COVID, I actually did a, a combo course with a Mexican university. So uh, I, I was connected with a, um, a doctor in Mexico. And oh, so wow. Her medical class, which were made up of juniors and seniors who were about to go out into the field and practice, were paired with a bunch of my students. And so we actually did Zoom classes 
where in the first class, um, my students introduce them to the basic vocabulary of cannabis, definitions, terms, endocannabinoid system, all that oh, good wow. stuff, because their, yes, yes. their knowledge was so far behind us, even though they're, they're medical professionals. They're basically doctors. Yeah. So that was the first one. And then we had another doctor come in that, that talked about um, more of the technical terms. And then eventually uh, we had the Mexican medical students present cases where they were considering the use of cannabis. So they would actually go oh, walk wow. through the whole case and say, all right, this is an 11-year-old childhood uh, they were traumatized here, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're um, going to start with CBD. Here's what we're going to do. So it was great for both parties. Wow. But the one thing that so really cool. stunned me is w- when I think that um, there's a, a lack of cannabis knowledge here in the U.S., it's definitely greater in Mexico. And then yeah. the other big thing is, and I think it's possibly because of um, religion and the Catholic Church, they have way more stigma, even though, oh, yeah. by and large, they are much more open mm-hmm. To, um, to plant-based medicine. Yeah, and yeah, they have a 100%. tradition of using all kinds of plant-based things. So if you get yep. sick in Mexico, you're not going to run to the doctor. Your mom is most likely going to make you some kind of tea or something first with different yeah. roots and et cetera. So, th- so they're kind of open to all this holistic health. But when it comes to cannabis, it still has way more stigma than it does in the U.S., yeah, it's and uh, and I think you nailed it on the head. The the Catholic Church influence, and you look at Catholic based countries. <clears throat> excuse me, a better part of uh, Latam, like you were mentioning. You know, not just uh, Mexico, but Central and and uh, you know Southern uh, Latin countries. You know, in South America, where there's such that level of Catholicism, dedication, and in in other parts, you know, Europe and and around the world. Man, the influence, it's so frustrating. And we're not the only ones that started the war on drugs. You know, I just, uh, article, uh, it's not coming out till September, but a little teaser, uh, the latest one I did was on Thailand. And it is interesting because, you know, it's something that, just talking on the herbal medicine note, you know, there were the elders that were growing this right next to turmeric and ginger and everything else in the garden. And they were making, to your point, herbal teas. And they knew exactly what formulas worked with what, rather be a toothache or... Um, my gosh, a lot of the field workers would use it for muscle pain. Uh, uh, women during pregnancy would use it for cramp and, um, and pains in that regard. Uh, you know, it was something that was just a part of life uh, until, to your point, until all of a sudden the, the country started chastising it and, and creating that war. And it was dating back to, my gosh, 1912, back when they were um, joining the international movement towards uh, making opioids and opium illicit. Yep. And, and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> and I still don't understand why, even in my studies in doing that, that article, um, that they amended, uh, you know, that opium movement with uh, cannabis in uh, the early 20s, 1920s. And it's like, why? Who, what, who, where, you, you know, what political influence? But it's created such a stigma. But then yet you go to other markets. I was just telling someone that um, I did Canna, uh, was it Canna Fest in Prague, right? And uh, the Czech Republic you know, formerly Russia. And uh, it was one of those things where as uh, quiet and kind of subdued as that, and I understand, you know, formerly being under communist rule, you know, how a country and how its respective people would be. But going to that event, there was, and this was so canifest, you can imagine what it was, bit of a protestable, but very much (laughs) business as well. The name tells it. But I walked in and there was a a, a makeshift, you know, temporary uh, childcare center where people that were in the industry, adults who had children that didn't have a grandparent or someone to keep a babysitter or whatever they call it, you know, they had this child care facility on site. And I'm like, oh my gosh, child protective services would be called in a New York minute. (laughs) (laughs) If this is something that you saw at MJ Biz or NCIA back in the States, I was totally taken aback. But it tells me that again, even as conservative as that country might be based on its history, um, that it's perception towards cannabis is very different than what I came across in Australia versus what I came across in Chile versus what I came across in Israel. It's, it's so discombobulated on where the levels of exception um, are around the plant. And some people don't like people that say, oh, it's just a plant, but you kind of have to step back sometimes and go, it is nothing special has to be, it's not cocaine. It's, it's not heroin. Nothing special has to be done to grow this. You literally can grow it in your backyard um, hang dry it like you would that awesome bouquet of, of flowers and consume it when you need it from a medicinal standpoint. So again, it's a whole, sorry, going a big tangent, but man, it just still floors me how the ideology is all over the place towards a plant in general, you know? Yeah, it definitely is. And the one small point I'll make about Mexico before we move on from that is that, um, one of the reasons that their legislation got stopped. So they did decriminalize it, um, in the whole nation, but yeah. they were about to put the, 
put it in, in uh, total adult use, which would have made it the world's biggest market with um, 130 million people. Yes. Canada has about 34 million. Yep. Mexico's 130. Yep. So it would have been the biggest market. But what they did was that they did the regulations for hemp. They did the regulations for adult use, but they really did not do the full regulations yeah. for the medical market. Exactly. And so that's really what kind of stopped everything, and they pulled it off the table because it was very close to passing. Oh, it's so close. And then to your point, and then add to stall, and then the pandemic came along, and that was stall, 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 which I understand. But yes. you, you sound again, <laughs> so similar. That was a, a post I put up a few months ago. I said, you know, individuals need to understand. Like, I know everyone got all excited, you know, back on, what was it, October of 2018, when, you know, the actual adult use kicked off in Canada. Yes, it's a G7 country. But to your point, the population is less than the state of California, technically by yeah. almost 10 million people, right? Now, yes, Canada is the second largest landmass to Russia. Okay, you've got that. But then, like you said, look at Mexico. Look at Mexico it has over 30 million, 100, excuse me, 130 million, and it's one-fifth the landmass of Canada. But the opportunity, again, is over the top, and not just domestic, but for export, and being able to be that example in North America, right? So... Here's, here's the U.S. behind the curve. We've got Canada on one side, you know, our hat, as everyone calls it, you know, and then we've got Mexico on the other side. They can get their stuff together. They can figure it out. But, you know, drowning in politics. Plus, plus, yeah. Plus I, plus, I don't think we can overlook the impact of cannabis tourism. Oh, It, it is gosh. a real thing, and it is a real driver 100%. and a real lever. I have yep. a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Applecar, who you probably know, who runs the, who's yeah. the head of the... Uh, California yeah. Cannabis Up Tourism Association. Yeah. And he was making the point that in one of the surveys they did, that about 20 or 25% of the people identified access to legal adult use cannabis was one of the drivers that led them to go to a certain place. So oh, yeah. if you want to go skiing during the winter, you have a lot of great choices. There's yep. wonderful ski resorts in, uh, in Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, Utah, et cetera. And a lot of pe- more people were picking Colorado because oh, yeah. of easy access. Yep. Um, at that point, Montana was not did not have adult use, and they don't. I mean, they're just setting up now. But anyway, about twenty five to thirty percent of the people, and if you count spring break, it actually bumps up even higher. Oh yeah, probably because of the college market. But at any rate, uh, people are looking for experiences, and they and they do want to experience cannabis as um, as part of food, as part of knowledge. They want to tour a growing field. Uh, they want to learn how to roll a joint. They want to do yeah. yoga and cannabis. They want to do athletics and cannabis. I mean, all the things that you like to do as a as a tourist anyway, all the things that kind of excite you. Yeah. You can add cannabis to most of those things. And uh, if that's one of your options as part of vacation, people are opting into that. Yep. And you're, and I, you know, think it is, you know, that uh, my wife's cool with it, but that's all the places we go on vacation. We did a cruise to Alaska and I loved it. We left out of Seattle, legal. We went up all through Alaska, several stops, Skagway, Juneau, et cetera, all legal. Stopped by in Vancouver Island on the way home, legal. <laughs> we planned our uh, <laughs> trip. We're going to Christmas. I always want to do Christmas in Hawaii. We're going to Hawaii uh, medicinally, but they are, uh, they do have reciprocity. You just have to apply in advance. Yep. Um, they're trying to change that, right? <laughs> but still legal, you know, so it is something to factor in but so much more opportunity and uh, like i said i think we're gonna have to do a part two because we have run out of time here but i definitely (laughs) appreciate it man there's plenty for us to catch up with rob so um thank you again for joining us and we'll definitely be in touch i'll give you a holler offline and uh we'll have you back on soon man it's great having you you got it. This was so much fun talking. And uh, yeah, obviously we could do part two, three, four, and whatever. whatever <laughs> It'll be the Rob Mejia and Lance really, show. I truly really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Me too. Thanks again, Rob. You um, bet. Take good care. Perfect. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, everyone. This is yet another episode of Cure to Consumption. Always a joy to have you. Be sure to take care of each other. And as always, good vibes. We'll catch up with you next week. Thanks again. Bye now. You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio.